you're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And I'm your host, Jim Friend. Happy summer, everybody, and welcome back. It is summertime, and I hope that you're finding some downtime to relax a little bit. You know, mental health during COVID-19 is so critical, and I just can't say enough about how important it is to take a break. A few weeks ago, uh, we took a staycation for a week here at home, but on one day, we took a little drive up to the Pocono Mountains. We're just 45 minutes south of the Poconos, and we did a whitewater rafting trip as a family, and boy, it was beautiful. We We just breathed the fresh air. We had a little barbecue. We went swimming. We laughed. We splashed each other. It was just some great family time. And if you haven't taken that family time just yet, you need to carve it out. It is so important to recharge the batteries. I know for many of you, the pace has not slowed down during the summer. Uh, And we're we're ramping up here again towards uh, late August and September when things really kick into high gear. So if you haven't carved out that time, please do so. Do that for yourself. Do that for the people that love you. Uh, Just take a break so that you can be recharged for the mission. As I said a few weeks ago, we've been on a short hiatus, and while we're not officially back to our weekly podcast just yet, I'm bringing you a timely and urgent discussion on the need for funding from the new stimulus relief bill, which is currently in discussion in the Senate, and in its current form does not offer any aid to Catholic school families or to private school families. And so I assembled a terrific panel this week, and we had a live stream conversation to discuss this topic and what can be done about it. And so, without further ado, here's our conversation. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. We're so glad that you could join us today, uh, either live or some of you may be watching this uh, in the pre-recorded format. Uh, My name is Jim Friend. I am a managing director for Changing Our World and the host of the Advancing Our Church podcast. And we just want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts Uh, for being a part of this issue, for taking part in this discussion. Um, I'm going to go through some uh, housekeeping, and then I'm going to introduce all of our panelists. But before we do that, uh, we're going to start, as we should with all things, we're going to start with a prayer. So uh, this is the prayer uh, for the coronavirus and for those who have suffered from that, and it's from the USCCB website. So let's begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Merciful Father. For all who have contracted the coronavirus, we pray for care and healing. For those who are particularly vulnerable, we pray for safety and protection. For all who experience fear and anxiety, we pray for peace of mind and spirit. For affected families who are facing difficult decisions between food on the table or public safety, we pray for policies that recognize their plight. For those who do not have adequate health insurance, We pray that no family will face financial burdens alone. For those who are afraid to access care due to immigration status, we pray for recognition of the God-given dignity of all. For our brothers and sisters around the world, we pray for shared solidarity. For public officials and decision makers, we pray for wisdom and guidance. Father, during this time, may your church be a sign of hope, comfort, and love to all. Grant peace, grant comfort, grant healing, and be with us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Well, again, welcome, everybody. Uh, so glad you could be with us here today. Uh, a couple pieces of housekeeping for those who have joined us for our webinar uh, before. It's uh, the same basic format. So we have a comments box, as you'll see, uh, and you're uh, able to type in comments and questions throughout the webinar that will be sent to us. And I'll play the, the panel moderator and, uh, and we'll try to get to as many questions as we can. If you have a question, I really do encourage you to do that because it does add some flavor and some, uh, if you have the question, I'm sure somebody else has the same question is the bottom line. So uh, we'll direct those to our panelists, let us know if it's directed to a particular panelist or we'll throw it out to the group at large. Uh, you'll be able to find a recorded copy of this presentation on our website at advancingourchurch.com. Uh, and we will email everyone who attended today uh, a link to that. It'll be available both in a video and an audio format. Um, and again, just thank you all for participating. I'd like to start by introducing John Schilling. He is the president for the American Federation for Children based in Washington, D.C. John has been with AFC since January 2007 and has been working in the education reform mo movement for more than 20 years. He has served for four years as the Associate State Superintendent and Chief of Policy at the Arizona Department of Education, and he was the Chief of Staff for the Education Leaders Council in Washington, D.C., and operated his own consulting firm that focused on education reform. John has worked extensively in elective politics at the federal and state levels for two members of Congress and a U.S. Senator and two state governments. John graduated from the University of San Diego with a Bachelor of Arts degree in history. Welcome, John. Glad to have you with us. Thank you. Mary Pat Donahue. Mary Pat is the Executive Director for the Secretariat for Catholic Education for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Over her 28 years of service to Catholic education, Mary Pat is perhaps best known for her tenure as principal at St. Jerome Academy in Hyattsville, Maryland, where she led the effort to move the parish school from near failure to a now thriving and growing institution. Before then, she served as a vice principal and as a teacher in the classroom. And since then, she has consulted nationwide with superintendents, pastors, and principals sharing her experience in teacher formation and supervision, curriculum implementation, and financial stability in conjunction with the Institute for Catholic Liberal Education. Mary Pat holds a Bachelor of Science in Elementary Education from the University of Maryland and a Master's in Education Administration from Trinity University in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Mary Pat. Glad to have oh, you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Kevin Baxter is the first Chief Innovation Officer for the National Catholic Education Association, NCEA. It's a relatively new position focused on creating innovative solutions to ongoing challenges and opportunities in Catholic school education, specifically in the areas of leadership formation, governance, financing, and innovation. Dr. Baxter is the former Senior Director and Superintendent of Schools for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, which holds the highest enrollment in our country. Before becoming senior director and superintendent, Dr. Baxter was the Archdiocese's superintendent of elementary schools. Dr. Baxter has a Bachelor of Arts in English and Communications from Villanova, a Master of Arts in Secondary Education from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and a Doctor of Education from the University of Southern California. Welcome, Dr. Baxter. Thank you very much, Jim. And Jennifer Daniels is the Associate Director for Public Policy for the Secretariat for Catholic Education for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. 
Jennifer served as the director for government relations for the Archdiocese of Washington from 2010 to 2015, where she advocated for state and federal legislative education issues related to funding, school choice and, reg and regulations, such as the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program and the Individuals with Disabilities Act and the Maryland State Credit Tax Legislation. Additionally, Jennifer worked with local education agencies in the six jurisdictions within the Archdiocese of Washington, overseeing implementation for federal grants under No Child Left Behind, E-Rates, and IDEA, IDEA. Jennifer also served with the U.S. Department of State for two years with the U.S. House of Representatives and for three, for three years. She has a Bachelor of Science degree and a degree in Advanced International Affairs from Texas A&M University. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Okay, so needless to say, we have a bunch of experts with us today, and we're going to talk about our favorite topic, which is education. Uh, and we have Catholic education representative as well as private education, John. Um, we're gonna start with Mary Pat. Mary Pat, let's begin by painting a picture, of uh, the national picture for Catholic schools over the past few months. Uh, we know that things have changed, obviously, quite a bit. We've even had another podcast on this just talking about the resilience of Catholic schools. We know that Catholic schools are, resource, are resourceful, but this has obviously been an unprecedented experience in Catholic education. Uh, how have Catholic schools across the country been impacted by COVID-19, uh, and what, where are we headed uh, today? Again, welcome, Mary Pat. Yeah, thank, thank you very much, Jim, um, and for the opportunity to speak on this incredibly important issue. Um, as almost anyone in our audience could tell you, Catholic schools have been affected by the COVID-19 crisis in many ways. Um, uh, for one thing, it's an emerging crisis, so we're learning every single day uh, about the impact. Um, fortunately, we have a lot of contacts through the country, and we work with our partners in NCEA and others to to help us to glean that information. But essentially what's going on is uh, job loss to families turns into revenue loss to schools as those families are unable to continue paying tuition. Uh, the same principle is in effect at our parish level weekly mass collections and diocesan level funds for tuition assistance. So from a Catholic school perspective, nearly every revenue stream has been harmed in some way by the COVID crisis, which is not to even mention the, the loss of fundraisers, particularly this past spring. Many schools do their, their large galas and other events at that time. Um, so that's the tsunami that has hit many of our schools. And as of this moment, we believe that there are approximately 140 schools that will not be reopening next year. And I, I should note that uh, that's the number we think today, but we've, we hear that many schools have given themselves an August 1st deadline to make that decision, and still there are others who have told us that uh, they've you know, deferred tuition payment from families till September 1st. So we think that these next two deadlines are going to be very telling for us. Uh, and certainly, I think um, you, you spoke of the strength and resilience and resourcefulness that is always part of Catholic education. And it will be that, um, but even more than that, it will be our prayerful reliance on the Holy Spirit to guide us from this moment of crisis, you know, in, into the next uh, stage, which we hope is a stage of recovery. Thanks, Mary Pat. 
Jennifer, I think we're all familiar with the CARES Act and how many Catholic schools have benefited from the legislation, but can you describe for us a little bit how the CARES Act is different from the current legislation that's being considered right now uh, between the House and the Senate? Absolutely. Um, the, the initial plan with the CARES Act was to give uh, schools immediate funding to respond to the COVID emergency um, everything from, you know, academic transitions to online learning, uh, software hardware that was needed for that, as well as health and safety measures, cleaning schools, things to that nature. Um, the money was given to the governors and then distributed down to the local education agencies. And we were grateful that in the CARES Act, they wrote the equitable services provision, which means that private schools get to have participation in the legislation by asking for not receiving direct funds, but asking for services and goods through their local school district. Um, and what has happened, unfortunately, is there's been a lot of pushback to that provision, even though this is a very basic provision that has been in every single major federal education law since they were initiated by President Johnson. And it's become a political um, fight that is quite unnecessary if people know the history of federal education programs. So we have now found ourselves, after being thrilled to be included in this legislation, um, watching two, we now have two separate lawsuits against the Department of Education fighting to exclude private schools from having access to these emergency funds. And while that is unfortunate in and of itself, it also does not concur with previous emergency legislation that we have participated in all the way back to Katrina, Hurricane Harvey, these other times where when there's an emergency, the Congress recognizes that all those who have been hurt need some uh, support. And that has also never been a controversial idea in the past. And we're finding ourselves now having to fight for emergency funds and services that should be available to all schools and all students, uh, rightly so. Um, and we're finding ourselves excluded. So that kind of bureaucratic explanation <laughs> leads me to uh, the full answer to your question is what we really are asking for Congress right now is assistance to our families. We would love for us not to get entangled in this current bureaucratic nightmare that we are seeing, and we would like our families to get aid from uh, from the next package, and then they can use that money for the educational uh, expenses that best meets the needs of their students. Um, private school tuition, if that's it, but there could be lots of other resources out there that families uh, need. And this is obviously becoming a growing problem even with our public school community as we see major, major school districts across the country saying that they're switching to um, exclusively online learning this fall. There's gonna be a lot of need for the parents um, to be able to make sure they can um, do that successfully with their children at home. That's tremendous. So, Mary Pat, you outlined um, kind of what the, the challenge is that Catholic schools are facing. Jennifer, clearly the challenge that we're having right now uh, on, on in the political front. John, let's talk for a moment about private schools and get you into this conversation. You lead the National School Choice Movement for Private Education. What are you seeing with private schools nationally right now, and, and what are their uh, greatest funding needs? 
Well, Jim, private schools are hurting right now. And as, as Mary Pat noted, with Catholic schools, we've seen all the stories about uh, closures all over the country. Uh, I don't think we really know and may not know for some time how many will reopen in the fall. And it's very, very troubling. Uh, we've seen some survey data that have provided some additional insight into this. Uh, there's one national survey of about 700 private schools, 55% said they were budgeting for enrollment decreases in the fall. Uh, we've seen surveys where Jewish schools were anticipating a 20 to 30% increase in tuition assistance requests. Uh, there's a survey in Florida for their tax credit scholarship program. 73% uh, of schools have seen a decline in re-enrollment. 64% uh, of schools in Georgia expect enrollment declines. These are all very troubling statistics. Uh, and for historical perspective, going back to the Great Recession, uh, according to the National Council for Economic Statistics, uh, private uh, elementary and secondary schools, uh, uh, the, the school population dropped by over 400,000 students during the Great Recession. And while we hope this crisis uh, isn't worse for private schools, we need, to, we need to acknowledge that it is a real crisis. And as Jennifer noted, we have got to figure out a way to get tuition relief for families very, very soon. Mm -hmm. Kevin, uh, you lead the uh, NCEA's programs for innovation and uh, for teacher, um, for leadership for teachers and for uh, administrators. Uh, how is this going to impact our teachers and our building administrators? How do you see it from your from your seat? Well, it's obviously impacted them a lot since March, um, as it's already been uh, addressed. Um, one of the things that's uh, inspiring and hopeful is to see, and, and you commented on this, Jim, is the resiliency that they demonstrated in terms of making that transition, how how quickly they did that and how uh, ably they did that, especially um, in comparison to some of the other options. So I think that's been a, an inspiring um, piece for us. I think moving forward, what we're, um, especially at NCA, what we're seeing is just the need to, um, to, to, to provide uh, training and support um, and uh, professional development to uh, to principals, to teachers uh, in a virtual realm, um, primarily because, um, well, number one, the virus, we're still not sure kind of where that's going to be in the coming months, but uh, because the budgets have all been cut, uh, we've heard um, cuts at the diocesan level up to 20, 25%. Um, and so obviously there uh, is not a lot of uh, revenue for um, for travel, for other types of things. And so we're transitioning, uh, and we did. We have transitioned um, to uh, to to provide more uh, virtual support for uh, for principals, for leadership, uh, for finance, for operational vitality, those types of areas to ensure that um, principals and teachers have those resources that they need. Uh, again, we can do all that, but um, we know the pressure is on our diocesan leadership and our school site leadership to really uh, respond. And, and the challenging thing about um, this crisis is that it's not a fixed crisis. We don't know what the next three months will look like. Um, you know, in terms of if a hurricane come through, for example, you know, the hurricane comes through and there's damage done. And then, you know, you can start to rebuild and, and you'll get to the end. But we're still not sure when the end of this is. And so that's the contingency upon contingency planning that our school site leaders and our diocesan leaders are having to do that we're just a uh, we're very uh, in awe of, but we know how challenging and difficult it is for them. It sounds like a, a, a platform is constantly moving underneath our schools, Kevin. And and how how do you, as a Catholic school uh, leader nationally, how how are you advising 
school administrators and teachers during this time. I mean, obviously, they have to be tremendously flexible and they have to encourage their parents to be tremendously flexible, while at the same time establishing, you know, faith in Catholic schools or faith in private schools. How do you advise uh, an administrator like that? Exactly. I, I, um, number one, I think the important thing is to be a communicator and to communicate mm -hmm. effectively and almost over-communicate. Um, if you're a school site leader, you want to make sure that you're in touch with your parents, you're in touch with your, your staff, your teachers. Um, obviously, you're in touch with your pastor uh, and your, your parish leadership. Um, keeping that communication open is very, very important. The other thing is to be flexible. Um, obviously, um, in, you have to have multiple plans and you have to be ready to, to change. And, and, and the leaders we've talked to across the country that's, uh, you know, they're all planning for one path, but they recognize that that path can shift uh, pretty dramatically depending on, uh, depending on what, what happens. Um, and then I think really it's, you know, you talk about our Catholic schools. One of the things that I think um, is great about our Catholic schools is the sense of community that they build. It's anchored on our faith, but, but that faith community is so important. Um, and, and while nothing um, compares with having people in person, students in the classroom, parents at, at school, and, and that type of one-to-one -one type of relationship building, um, the fact that they have built those communities uh, in their schools, where you see that community that's been strong, they can still maintain that community even in a virtual environment. It's not as easy. It's a challenge. It's not the same thing. But uh, it's remarkable to see that that, um, that that core of community can be maintained uh, in terms of uh, where we are with the crisis. Great answer. John, um, if more schools close, and what is the impact of that on the public school system? As you know, we look at, as Mary Pat said at the beginning of this, we have 140 schools that have already closed. We obviously may have more on the table before this is done. Uh, what, does, what does that do to our public school system? And what does that do to our funding structure for that? Do you have any idea? Uh, it will be devastating. Uh, and just, um... You know, non-public schools in this country educate uh, about 10% of the K-12 children. Uh, they represent about 25% of the nation's schools. They employ about a half a million teachers. They are a vital part of this K-12 system, a vital part, and their survival is in the national interest. Uh, it would be an absolute tragedy uh, to see schools close. It's a tragedy for students and families and communities. Uh, but one of the things that we're trying to point out is it would also be a financial disaster for states and school districts. Um, so private schools educate around 5.7 million students, uh, saves the public system about 75 billion annually. If 20% of non-public school students were forced to go back into the public system, the additional cost to states and school districts would be at least $15 billion. They don't have this money. So it is really uh, in Congress's best interest to really make a strategic investment here to ensure that that does not happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Jennifer, we were talking before the webinar uh, begin began that we know that there was some new information today. Uh, you know, what kind of legislation are we hoping for that's going to come out of the Senate? And, and what was some of the new information, some of the headlines that you're seeing that came out today for us? Yeah, the... Um... 
Senate Republicans are working with the administration to come up with an agreed proposal that they can release, um, and then they will then have to go talk to the Democrats about that proposal. Um, so that's where we are now. There was some reports this morning about some top-line numbers of what would be included in that, including $70 billion for K-12 education and $10 billion for private schools. We don't know what that looks like, though, and what that format would be, um, but we're encouraged by those numbers. Um, what we have been talking about for the last probably two to three months with Congress is, as I mentioned, this idea of aid directly to families. So we have been um, working on a piece of legislation for over two years now, which would create a federal uh scholarship program in every in all 50 states where the state set up a scholarship granting organization and the donors to those uh, organizations get a federal tax credit. So we've been working on this for a long time and thought that this would be um, a great opportunity to uh, bring in that legislation, which would then get dollars into the hands of families for their educational expenses, public and private for that matter. Um, However, that idea is takes a little bit of time to get off the ground if you don't have the donors lined up or you don't have even the scholarship granting organizations in place. So we said, since this is an emergency and we have an emergency funding, let's start out with a one-time emergency appropriation to get those scholarship granting organizations off the ground. And that money will be there now they don't have to raise it because our schools are opening very, very quickly and parents are making the decision of whether or not they can go to a public school right now as we speak. So we don't have time to wait. So it was a kind of one, two punch plan where we have the direct appropriation. And then once that money um, is spent, those scholarship granting organizations would continue to, to operate but under a private direct donor model, and those donors would get that um, tax credit. So I, um, as John mentioned, you know, we saw at the last recession, thousands of private schools that closed, not in that very first year, but two to three to four years later. And so it's really vital that we don't just give parents a one-time handout, but we create an opportunity for parents to have long-standing control uh, over for their parents, their child's education. And so allowing these scholarship granting organizations to be stood up now and then continue to operate is really vital for the long-term success of our schools as we don't know what the end of this emergency looks like right now. Well, the sense of urgency is clearly there, especially as parents are right now making those decisions, uh, both either for a private or for a Catholic education. Jennifer, we have a question from one of our participants here for you. What else can you tell us about those lawsuits that you mentioned at the beginning of your comments uh, that are attempting to block uh, the private schools and the HEROES Act? Can you share anything with us on that? Yeah, the first lawsuit was um, initiated about a week ago from the state of Maryland, um, I'm sorry, the state of Michigan, um, and had, um, at the time, I think four states and a couple others have joined. So it was really the state leaders that were saying that they wanted the rule itself to be removed, um, and that would then allow them to um, give the money to their public schools and exclude thousands of private schools from participating. Um, since then, I think just yesterday, the NAACP filed a second suit um, highlighting their concerns about this impact on low-income families, and they've been joined by a couple other school districts. Um, 
uh, and some and some families, um, which is ironic because we have been this has been a key talking point of ours is that our low income children and many African-American and Hispanic children are being left out of the CARES Act. That's exactly who we're trying to protect. Um, and that's exactly, um, count, you know, it's counter to the, the lawsuit itself. And um, I hope that these will get struck down as quickly as possible when the judge looks and says, this is exactly how things have been done for all these years. This is nothing different. Um, and y'all are picking a new fight here. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you for that. Um, John, a question directed towards you. What avenues do you see for tuition relief for private school families beyond what may become available through this current legislation that's being considered? Well, I'm hopeful that the, uh, the short-term financial relief will indeed come from this legislation in the form of this emergency appropriation. Uh, we remain hopeful that that's going to get done. This is crucial. Uh, it needs to happen soon. The money needs to get out the door very quickly. As far as the long term, uh, you know, I would point to the other part of this, uh, the, the other part of what we are seeking here, uh, which are these federal tax credits. Because if we can get this mechanism in place and get these federal tax credits enacted, uh, that then will sustain this over a longer period of time, and I think will ultimately be a huge benefit to private school families, to families all over the country. That's what we're hoping for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so here's a marketing question. Um, one of our one of our participants uh, is saying that because of the many aspects of the crisis facing Catholic schools, we're seeing that most are stopping or cutting back on their marketing dollars. How can we convince school administrators that marketing isn't a luxury for fat times, but a necessity in lean times as well? Um, it's obviously a, a temptation for many to cut back on the marketing dollars when you need it the most. Uh, any any thoughts on that from anyone on the panel? I would just share that um, obviously marketing is important, and I think what marketing does is it tells your story and it demonstrates your value. And I think what we what has been very clear, even though this has been an incredibly challenging time, and and, and all the data on uh, school closures and and uh, and all of those impacts. What has been really clear is the value the Catholic schools bring to the educational conversation and, and the way they have been um, responsive to this in an innovative and creative ways, the way they've, um, they've brought community together. And so I think what we need to do is really tell that story because we know that people are struggling, uh, obviously, with the economy and with um, coronavirus and all of those impacts. Uh, that's a tremendous challenge. And so all the talk about our, our federal legislation, and we obviously hope that that goes well, but we have to make the case that Catholic schools are, are worth the price, are worth the value. And again, it's a hard conversation to have now because of the reality that we face, but that value in my mind has never been more evident. The mm -hmm. value in times of crisis, in times of concern, in times of challenge, that's when you see the value so evident. And so I think that's, if you're going to market, if you're going to tell your story, you really have to sell that value proposition and really articulate it clearly to your parents, to your current parents and your perspective. Mary Pat, you want to jump in there? Uh, you're on mute, Mary Pat. We can't hear you. I'm sorry. Sorry. Thank you. Um, that seems to be the echo of the age, isn't it? You're on mute. Um, <laughs> I do want to piggyback on uh, what Kevin said, and that is that Marketing ultimately really is telling a story. And, you know, you mentioned when you, you read off my bio that I did head a school 
that was really near closure and was about oh half million dollars in debt when we worked to turn this thing around. So we had no money and we had no money for a marketing budget per se. But we what we did is we sort of deputized everybody to tell the story, to get on neighborhood listservs, um, to sponsor programs. I know that's a little more difficult in this uh, virtual COVID age, but um, to have you know, online open houses, to have panels of your teachers presenting, um, to have students presenting, uh, reciting, giving presentations, et cetera. So um, I do understand as a principal, when you're looking at having to meet payroll or pay for a marketing plan, um, and, and I don't think you have to, to, to sacrifice one for the other. I think you, you can market your school, you can tell the story, um, but you can do it really by making it an all hands on deck approach. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. Um, question from um, a Pennsylvania member of the Pennsylvania Catholic Conference, uh, my friend Sean McAleer. Will the USCC be issuing an action alert for the final rule comments period? Yes. Uh, very weedy question from Sean. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sean is one of our, he's like the hardest worker for Catholic schools across the country. I love him. He's the best. Um, yeah. So what Sean's referring to is the rule that Secretary DeVos put out to try to ensure equity for private school children in the emergency um, package. And that rule um, is they're accepting comments on regulation.gov right now through July 31st. So we have um, actually finalized today, working with NCEA and their policy director, we finalized um, a kind of short and sweet message that we can send out to um, you know, all Catholics that um, support Catholic schools. Um, and that should be going out probably Friday or Monday. Um, and then additionally, we as the USCCB are through the Office of General Counsel filing very detailed legalese comments. And we're working with our Catholic conference directors across the country to file more substantial comments as well and really highlight the dollars that have been um, limited now for our, for our children. Terrific, terrific. Um, here's another question uh, from Lauren. How can we assist our middle-class families? In states like Florida, lower-income families have access to scholarships, but what about families who don't qualify for lower-income scholarships? I think that's a common challenge with a lot of Catholic and private schools. Anyone want to take that one? Well, sure, I, I just, I think you've seen across the country that that threshold continues to trickle up. And I think that's something we continue to talk about here in Washington for our proposal. We suggested $150,000 per family, which is in line with the cutoff that Congress used to issue the checks, the emergency checks to families. And so in an effort to get more into that middle class family threshold, that was um, a dollar amount that we that we went with this time. But it is a it is a, a part of our ongoing strategy is to do our best to continue to grow the programs that already exist and to go back into those and at, uh, as they get reauthorized or updated and try to um, get that poverty threshold up a little bit higher for, you know, our firemen and our policemen and, you know, other fellow teachers that, that want to send their kids to private school. And it's just maybe just barely not enough. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's a really important thing. And, you know, one of the things we work in a lot of states across the country, uh, it is always a challenge to try to get the highest income threshold possible. Uh, politicians have a habit of defaulting to the uh, to the easiest thing to do, which is, well, let's just help poor kids and failing schools. Well, it, the problem is much bigger than that. We have to be helping. We have to be helping all families be able to choose the best educational environment for their kids. And it's a constant battle to a make sure that the scholarship amounts are high enough, uh, and two to make sure that the income threshold is going to push into that middle class. That's an ongoing challenge. Kevin, did you have a comment? You were going to jump in as well. I was going to comment similarly. Even before COVID, when I was superintendent in Los Angeles, we used to see this problem very acutely, that um, that it was the middle income, even upper lower income families who were really, really struggling. It is that proverbial kind of cop and school teacher, you know, with two or three kids who really can struggle with Catholic school tuition. Um, and so this is not a this is not a problem that's been made evident by COVID. It's just been exacerbated in my mind. And so it is absolutely something that we need to think about and focus on because uh, it's a community that, that um, we have concerns about. Absolutely. Uh, another question from one of our guests. What are the risks of accepting federal funds as a religious organization? I've heard varying things and would like to understand the, the dynamics of this. Anyone want to take that? I think, Jennifer, you had mentioned we were trying to avoid that. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yes. Um, yes, there absolutely are risks. There's, um, a, you know, a handful of civil rights laws that are um, been around addressing different concerns and different issues that provide um, some religious exemptions for religious institutions, but generally exemptions if you are not a direct recipient of federal funding. Um, but more so than that is, you know, the politics are constantly changing. And so we don't know what could be coming down the road and changes that could be in place down the road. Um, and our concern is always to ensure that our mission is never, um, uh, impeded and that we can hire teachers that will, um, commit to the Catholic school's mission and, um, and that be able to have that autonomy. It's really important to distinguish direct federal funding from equitable services and scholarship programs that even if they have a uh, tax element to them, those are not direct funding uh, programs if it's a scholarship or equitable services because the money goes, uh, in the, well, in the case for equitable services, we never receive the money. We request goods and services and they are paid for and all organized by the, the public entity. And of course, with the case of scholarships, even if it's a direct funding voucher that goes to that family, um, it goes to the family first. The family has the choice if they want to bring it to um, a private school, a religious school, a non-religious school. And so therefore, we are not direct recipients of federal funding by participating in a school choice program. Sure. Uh, another question, if the Freedom Scholarships are an opt-in, how will children and families in blue states with hostile governors benefit? Well, that's a familiar question that we've heard once or twice before over the last three years. Uh, and, and look, um, this, is, this is in deference to federalism, uh, for the states to decide whether they want to be in or whether they want to be out. If I am a blue state governor, and the federal government is putting two, $300 million of free money on the table for me, I would be a fool not to take it. Now, uh, we realize that as school choice advocates, AFC is a school choice advocate that works all over the country, 
we fully realize that we will have to go and if this gets enacted, we will have to go into states and we will have to ensure that governors are going to allow these funds to be used for private school tuition. And I assure you that we are going to do that. And I think families will rise up and demand that, that, that this be an acceptable use of funds. I just don't see how a governor politically can turn down the money. I agree. Um, here's an interesting question. Has one public school closed during COVID-19? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a great question. It's a great question. And, and yeah. the thing that these, you know, one of the things that, you know, the USCCB, AFC, all the other folks that have been advocating for, for relief here, the pandemic doesn't distinguish between public school students and private school students. It, it affects everybody, and that, that's really the message that we've been trying to pound home with Congress over the last uh, you know, six, seven weeks. Uh, here's an interesting question. Why does Senator Scott's SCN legislation say that states have until March 30th of 2020 to disperse the remaining 50% of the emergency funds to SGOs, the bill gives SGOs good flexibility in terms of implementation timelines, but the extra three months seem to leave a lot of time for opponents to muddle implementation if Trump loses. Kind of a political mm -hmm. question. Anybody want to touch that one? <laughs> yeah. I, from what I understand, and I haven't, we haven't been able to have a conversation directly with Senator Scott's staff, because this literally came out last night. <laughs> Right. But mm -hmm. from what I understand is that the goal is to ensure that money gets out the door as fast as possible. Now, this is potentially could be a lot of money. I mean, we've been asking for 10 percent. If it was 10 percent of 70 billion dollars, that's seven billion dollars for scholarships. Mm -hmm. um, if it's this 10 billion dollar pot, that's 10 billion dollars. So it, it does take time to do these things. So I think but they didn't want states to stall completely and do nothing. So they put in really quick turnaround times. I think it's 15 days to get it out the door to the states and then 15 more days. Um, in a state that doesn't have a scholarship granting organization, they're given a little bit more time to establish a scholarship granting organization. Um, but in talking to many of our friends in blue states that don't have them, they think they can do that very quickly because there's already lots of private support that uh, is privately money to uh, to scholarships, so they think they can transition that. So the idea is we do not want to not see any scholarships go out the door until January, um, but it may be that they're giving them a little bit of wiggle room after they get a huge chunk out. But we do need to, we need to follow up on that and make sure we fully understand it. Well, here's a follow-up to that that another one of our guests uh, has asked. Given the legislation that Senators Scott and Alexander introduced today, should we be shifting what we're asking our communities to contact their representatives to advocate for. Do you see any need for change? So we, so, so really what we have been advocating for now for several weeks is exactly what the Scott Alexander bill proposes. And so now our challenge is we want to make sure that the Scott Alexander legislation is included in the base bill in the Senate. Uh, the Senate bill, you know, the larger bill began to unravel a little bit today. Uh, there's been some talk now, perhaps doing multiple bills. But the bottom line is the Scott Alexander 
proposal is what we have been advocating for. And the, and the ask right now is to ensure that it gets into the main base Senate bill. That is the ask. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And if I can add, while calling, uh, I think everyone can see there are action alerts on the screen. Um, and I encourage everyone to reach out to their members of Congress. But I do want to highlight, because time is short here, there are a limited number of people that are actually making decisions. So if you're someone from Kentucky or Missouri or uh, Tennessee, your senators are in leadership and they are the ones that are gonna make this final decision. So if you're from those states, please uh, really uh, put it all, put all of your efforts in right now because these decisions will be made in the next 24 to 48 hours potentially. Um, are we seeing a lot of superintendents uh, and, and building administrators, school administrators active on this issue? Are we seeing are we seeing a lot of activity out there in the field? Mary Pat, uh, do you want to take that one? Yeah, yeah, sure. No, we are. In fact, um, I think Kevin made the first great point, which is that uh, our Catholic school leaders are doing an excellent job communicating to their own people. Um, but from my office's perspective, we have just been amazed by how many have lifted their voices to Congress and responded to our action alerts and emailed or called their legislators, which, which as Jennifer said, is exactly what we need to do right now. That case needs to be made really all across the country. Um, and so we commend it and ask you to keep your foot on the gas a bit longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were at approximately 80,000 uh, contacts to Congress um, just last week, and I know there's been a lot more this week come in. So That's tremendous. You know, we, we are, we're working on a social media campaign with all of you uh, to, uh, to advocate for uh, this, uh, for this legislation, um, but we've heard it described as organic, that it needs to come from the individuals to protect the nonprofit status of our schools. Jennifer, can you kind of elaborate a little bit on that? Just Well, I think that what we're doing does just that. I don't think that there's um, any conflict there. Um, we are, we want our our uh, schools to be engaged, but we do want those and those decisions to be made at the local level. There is a lot of flexibility in the proposal for the governors to design programs in various ways. So it's important that those local groups and local leaders speak up to their governor and working through your Catholic conference. Um, I'll tell you, our Catholic conferences all across the country have just been working day and night. They have been in touch with their state and local leaders on the CARES Act, on the rule, on the governor's fund, things like that. So I think there's a, a huge um, grassroots work out there that, and those people on the ground, I'm, I'm always surprised. I think I have this like great idea. And then I'll talk to a Catholic conference person and they're like, well, that's an okay idea, but here's how it's better for my state. And I'm going to tweak it for my state and it'll work really well. And I'm like, perfect. You know? So I think that, uh, our, our, our institutions are, are really good at doing that to meet the best needs of their children. Jim, I just want to throw in there too, really quick, just about, um, there's no no risk to nonprofit status if you're advocating for an issue. So issues are fine to advocate for. It's a, you can't advocate for an individual politician, those types of things. So it's a very important point for schools and for dioceses to understand is that issue advocacy is, is totally fine and, and doesn't jeopardize your nonprofit status. That's a great point, Kevin. Thank you. Um, kind of wrapping this conversation up, unless we have any other questions. But, uh, you know, in the midst of all this, 
Oh yeah, by the way, school starts in a little over a month, right? And so <laughs> we have uh, we have a lot of building administrator administrators, a lot of teachers that are learning how to uh, teach in a new environment here and actually try to physically bring some of their students back on a limited basis. Um, what are you seeing? Uh, maybe throw this to Mary Patton and to Kevin. Um, what are you seeing as far as uh, overall nationwide, as far as how our schools bringing their students back and um, and and what has been the receptivity, I think, of parents and of teachers and into adjusting to this new learning environment? Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, it goes back to that uh, initial question about, you know, resourcefulness and flexibility. We've seen uh, dioceses and schools start task force groups months ago um, looking at reopening. We have some great resources. The Greeley Center for Catholic Education put out a wonderful resource uh, checklist for the reopening of schools. Um, our leaders are consulting with um, CDC, their own state departments of health, uh, regarding uh, a safe reopening in places where we can have students back on campus, and certainly that is our, our goal because we understand education is a formative and relational process ultimately. Um, in the event that that can happen, of course, then, then there has been a great commitment um, to more of the virtual learning environment. And I think Kevin um, can speak about that because NCEA has just done an amazing job of uh, providing a lot of content uh, to teachers and leaders in that area. So I'll throw it to Kevin. Sure, and we have, and, and we've committed to continuing that. I think we're really um, you know, proud in, uh, of what we've done since the um, since the pandemic shut schools down back in March. Uh, we've offered a number of different trainings, uh, many of them at no charge to Catholic school educators, and we've had a tremendous um, tremendous participation from Catholic school educators and. We've had a commitment to kind of shift. It's a little bit of a shift for us to really uh, move more and more of our professional development online this coming year, so um, so Catholic educators can access. But you know, the other thing about starting school, I've, and I, I think about this in terms of legislation, and, and you know, uh, Jennifer made the comment too that past you know um, relief bills and things like that have always been broadly applied. And I think you know we we, we get in so many problems in my mind when we, we lose sight of education's about kids. You know, this is ultimately all about kids. And, and what we're trying to do is to support kids just like other uh, educational entities are trying to support kids. And when I was a principal, I used to say that you got into trouble when adult issues kind of came in and, and overtook and you lost sight of the fact that it's all about kids. And I think even starting school and those types of decisions, if we just keep kids at the center of our decision making, um, ideally, uh, that's going to help guide you effectively to make the right decision for your community. Uh, just a couple quick questions just came in at the end, and then we'll wrap up here. But Kevin, I want to make sure we don't miss the fact that this has, uh, from the beginning, is always about kids. I think it's a great point. Um, what uh, do we know when uh, the legislator legislators will be voting on this, or the Senate will be voting on this? Jennifer, do you have a sense of that? <laughs> the vote is very unknown right now. So, um, as a reminder, the the House passed the Heroes Act. Um, several weeks ago, a while back. Um, so that's been done. This bill will look nothing like the HEROES Act. It's kind of starting from scratch. Um, and let me not fail to mention the HEROES Act um, excluded all private schools and also retroactively took away access to funds in the CARES Act. So it couldn't be any worse for our schools. Um, so what's happening now is the Republicans in the Senate are putting together their package. Um, they have not released actual 
text language. They've only released basically bullet points. So first that has to come out. We think we may see language by this weekend. Um, and then the negotiations will begin with the Democrats. And that could take a number of weeks, We're, unfortunately. So we are thinking it probably won't be before August that we see a vote. Um, and so therefore, those of you who have done your action alert already, please uh, don't think that once is necessarily going to be enough, or if you did one a couple weeks ago, we're going to need to keep this pressure up all the way through August, potentially to the middle of August. So please don't get weary on us and please keep it coming. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would just add on to that. Um, there, there are a couple of deadlines that we should pay attention to. Uh, technically, Congress is supposed to go on recess. Uh, uh, August the 7th, uh, the Democratic Convention begins August the 17th. Uh, I don't think they want to be focused on not having done their jobs uh, by the time of their convention. So I would say over these next two weeks, it's just critically important, as Mary Pat noted, keep your foot on the gas. Uh, more action alerts are going to be needed. If we, uh, if we are successful in getting what we need into the Senate bill, uh, the hard part begins after that because that's when negotiations with the House begins. And as Jen noted, uh, their bill is an abomination. So we, we've really got to fight hard for this. Terrific. And if I can just um, plug our action alert, the, the link below is, is a very specific one. But if you just go to usccb.org and you click on action, you can uh, find our current action alert, but also sign up for future action alerts. So um, if you haven't done that yet, please do. Absolutely. And I'll also give a little plug that if you'd like some marketing materials that were put together for this that you can post on social media, uh, visit our website at advancingourchurch.com. You'll be able to click over to a number of different uh, graphics and media that you can use to uh, to drive traffic towards the USCCB and towards the other links that will uh, help you to take action and contact your legislator. Mary Pat, Jennifer, John, Kevin, just want to thank you for this great conversation. Thanks for your participation today. I know that you'll all be available and we'll make sure that we post links to each of you uh, when we post this up on our podcast so that people can contact you if they have further questions. Thanks so much Thanks. for having us. Thanks, Jim. Thank, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. God bless. What a tremendous group of professionals and a great conversation we had today. I just want to thank John Schiller, Mary Pat Donahue, Kevin Baxter, and Jennifer Daniels for being on our show today. I will leave a link to each of them in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to them individually. I'll also leave a link to the full video presentation as well. If you would like to take action on today's topic, just visit us at advancingourchurch.com forward slash take action. Again, it's advancingourchurch forward slash take action. All the resources are right there at your fingertips. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team for their support of our show. If you'd like more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm, and we've been advising both nonprofits and corporations for the past 20 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everybody. Continue to have a great summer. Take action on this issue today. Thanks for all you do to advance the mission of our church. God bless.